Hello, my name is Rosemary Milsom and I'm the director of the Newcastle Writers' Festival. In Harm's Way was recorded in 2017. Suzanne Lille hosts a discussion with Sarah Armstrong, Emily Maguire and Michael Sala about the impact of violence. All three writers explore this timely issue through fiction. Sarah Armstrong was a much lauded journalist and producer at the ABC before she moved to Byron Bay to devote herself to writing fiction. Her first novel, Salt Rain, you might know, it was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin Award, the Queensland Premier's Literary Prize and the Dobby Literary Award. Her second novel, His Other House, such a fascinating title, was also much acclaimed. But today we're talking about this book, Promise. You may have seen this around. Emily Maguire is the author of the novel Taming the Beast, which was an international bestseller and finalist for the Dylan Thomas Prize and the Kathleen Mitchell Award. She's since published non-fiction work, Princesses and Porn Stars, and the novel The Gospel According to Luke. Her new novel, An Isolated Incident, has just been shortlisted for the Stella Award, Stella Prize. Welcome to you, Emily. Michael Sala might be known to many of you. He's a creative writing lecturer at the University of Newcastle. His first book, The Last Thread, won the New South Wales Premier's Literary Award for New Writing and was regional winner for the Commonwealth Book Prize. His second book, The Restorer, is going to be launched this afternoon at four o'clock at the Watt Space Gallery. So congratulations and welcome to you, Michael. Thank you. So Michael, Emily and Sarah, violence threads its way through each of your books, sometimes implied, sometimes blatant, sometimes it makes you gasp, and yet it's never violent simply for the sake of it. Michael, in The Restorer, we meet a family who have just moved out to Newcastle. Who are they? Okay, so um, the uh, people in my novel, there's, uh, there's Roy and uh, there's Marianne and they're a couple that are getting back together after a uh, absence for, they, they've, they've had a separation and they've come, back, come to Newcastle from Sydney to kind of reinvent themselves by restoring a house. And uh, I guess uh, what happens during the novel is that their past slowly starts to come back to them. Yeah. Yes. So we're just talking about the echo. It's quite difficult echoing on stage. I'm not sure if we can remedy that. Otherwise, we'll just be um, be talking. What's brought them to Newcastle? Okay. Yeah. So in terms of the story. Uh, they return to Newcastle, uh, sorry, they don't return to Newcastle, they come to Newcastle because um, they need a new start. And so pretty much as the novel unfolds, we start to find out why they separated in the first place. We start to realise that what's happened between them is part of a pattern that's occurred in the past as well. It's something brooding and there's something almost frightening about Roy. Can you describe him for me? Okay, well, Roy is, uh, I, I, he's based on a few people I've known in my life. 
Um, <laughs> one of them, uh, I guess, one of the inspirations for Roy is uh, my stepfather back in the day, uh, and he's a powder keg. He's um, he's a man who's very good with his hands, and if he has a problem, he can solve. He's not quite happy, but at least he's satisfied. But he finds it very hard to engage with people because he can't control the outcome. Um, he has problems with anger management. Um, he would like to be a better person than what he is, but in the end he just he finds it too easy to slip into his old patterns of behaviour. Do you have sympathy for him? Uh, look, for me, I had to be really careful because I, I needed to write him sort of sympathetically. But in a way, the, the novel's not about him. It's about the, the women in his life, his daughter and his wife. And so what I'm trying to do with this novel, in a sense, is it's more about how they respond to him, how they deal with him and how they interpret his behaviour and try to deal with the things he does. I think that comes out very clearly. So why exactly did you write this book? Well, my first book was, uh, was autobiographical. Uh, it detailed my own childhood. And uh, my mother in, in that book, I, I guess uh, my stepfather, he ended up leaving us when I was 10. And uh, he kidnapped my younger brother at that point and went to Queensland and uh, yeah he threatened to to kill himself at that point if we tried to pursue him and that certainly uh, that had a devastating impact on our family that event and I see my younger brother now um, but it's affected all of us really really badly so in a way, I kind of had experienced this kind of violence, but what really, I guess, drew me to the story was the complexity of my mother's situation in all of this. And for me, um, what made me want to write a novel was this way of kind of, you know, it's too easy to reduce kind of domestic violence situations, for example, to, well, why doesn't she just leave? Um, and to me, the when you're inside the problem, it's so much more complex and difficult to, to come up with easy solutions. So that was one side of it. And the other side of it was really, when you read a lot of the accounts in newspapers, they really focus on the man. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll focus on the fact that, you know, the guy was a local soccer coach or he was this or he was that. And then they'll just, as an afterthought, mention something about, about the, uh, the, the person who is murdered. And so I really, um, in this situation, I wanted this to be a story from a f about male violence from a female perspective and to really explore the complexity of their situation. Reminds me, Emily, of your book. Really, it seems in an isolated incident, this is a book about the aftermath of violence. Tell me a bit, bit about your book. Yeah, it's um, absolutely about the aftermath of violence. Um, so. The novel is about the grief and also the new understanding of the world that comes upon a particular character, a small town barmaid named Chris, um, when her younger sister Bella is murdered. Um, I wanted to write a crime story, if you like, that 
didn't focus on the puzzle of catching who did it, didn't go into, like Michael was saying, the reasons why someone had done this necessarily and examined this killer's demons or his struggles. I actually wanted to really write about why a death like this matters, apart from the fact it's illegal. What is the actual size and shape of the hole left in the world when a woman is murdered? Um, and so that's why it's written mostly from the point of view of her sister, of someone who loved this woman and imagined she would always have her and now she's not there. Give us a bit of an insight into Chris. She's an extraordinary character. Just introduce her to the audience. Um, so, yeah, I love Chris, um, which helped a lot writing this book because, as it must sound like, it can be a bit grim in the material. But Chris was a character who just came to me really very easily and she's great company, even when she was going through really tough stuff and it, it helped me a lot in the writing. She um, works in a pub in the small New South Wales town of Strathdee. Um, she's lived there her whole life. She's worked in the pub all her adult life. She's in her late 30s um, at the point when Bella's killed. She has an ex-husband who she's still got the hots for. They're very bad for each other. He comes back into town after the murder. Um, she has a real thing for truckies, which is good for her that she works in a truck stop pub. Um, because plenty of them need a place to stay overnight. Um, and she doesn't have a great lot of ambition apart from maybe saving up enough to have a house deposit in this small town to see her sister who she adores and hang out with her and get laid every now and then and that's the kind of life she imagines for herself and is happy with. Um, and then this unimaginably tragic event happens and she's sort of um, rocketed into a different kind of life and the main thing in that for her is it's a life without her sister. Um, but the other part of it is that she becomes a kind of a face in the media because this is one of those murders that makes national news and she's kind of expected to be some kind of spokesperson and she doesn't want that, she's not prepared for that, she's not good at that. Um, and so, yeah, her, her entire life is, is overturned while she's trying to deal with this incredible private grief. She's a great character and I felt so much empathy and sympathy for her. Sarah, yours story, Promise, is the story of 37-year-old Anna and her five-year-old neighbour, Charlie. Your book also opens with a moving scene, but Anna hasn't moved. What's happened? The book opens. The book opens with um, the family arriving next door to Anna. So Anna lives in Sydney, in suburban Sydney, and there's a new family uh, pulls up next door, which is actually how my book opens. <laughs> when I read Michael's book, it's like, oh my goodness. <laughs> And uh, the, Anna very soon realises that the five-year-old girl next door is really at risk, uh, that she's being abused, and she does what she can. She reports to family and community services. She calls the police. Uh, but nothing happens, no help comes, and she becomes concerned that the child's in really grave danger, and she ends up taking the child. 
and going on the run because she's afraid the child will die. I'm a, I'm a lawyer and I'm thinking, you can't do that. <laughs> you can't go and take a kid like that. But then you think, or can you? So what was the in incentive behind that book, Sarah? Well, I read an article and saw a news report about a child, a two-year-old child in Wollongong whose mother was charged with his murder. And the neighbours of this child had reported him to family and community services multiple times and they were really concerned about his welfare. They tried to do the right thing. They tried to go through the proper channels and the child died. Uh, and I put myself in the shoes of those neighbours and I thought, if I were one of those people, I think his family daycare has also reported him, I would just wish that I had picked that kid up and run. That's what I would wish. And at the time, my own daughter was about three and I was just very acutely attuned to the vulnerability of children and thought, even before I read this article, thought about, you know, the children in my town who are undoubtedly enduring terrible things and it just, I just put myself in the, that, the neighbour's shoes and I thought, this is a story, this is a story I can write and because I felt very helpless I couldn't do anything about the children in my town who are undoubtedly suffering. I could write a story about someone who takes action. So I think it was for me, it was useful for me to do so that I didn't sort of go down into a pit of despair and helplessness. What I found interesting as well was that often in fairy tales, bad things happen and then there's a saviour. Early on in your book, a bad things happened and the saviour comes and takes her. But that's only the beginning, isn't it? Yes, because she takes her and she goes on the run and then they go on a whole journey together. And, you know, it's a love story. It's a love story above all, to my mind. And even though there are moments in it that, you know, I had to write a bit of, um, show the reader what Charlie the child was enduring so that it was plausible that Anna would do what she did. Uh, but I tried to write only the barest minimum necessary. Uh, but really, it's a love story. It's about Anna, who's the most unlikely kind of saviour, really, and has lots of her own um, issues. Uh, it's a love story between her and this five-year-old child who's traumatised and troubled and wants her mum. She wants her mum, despite the fact her mum is not good for her. Uh, and they run up to the hills outside Mullumbimby, which is where I happen to live. I write a lot about Mullumbimby. It's very kind of rich territory to write about. Mm. And it's about what unfolds then between them. And, of course, the police are looking for them. I was interested that Sarah talked about just giving form, little brush strokes about the violence rather than focusing on it. And you do this very clearly, don't you, Emily, and very deliberately. Deliberately, we're not told about Bella's injuries. She's the murder victim. And we're also told about the scruples of journalists when trying to go for a sensationalist story or a deeper one. Was that something that you were mindful of? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things I was yeah, extremely mindful of was the way that so much in, in crime fiction, but also true crime writing and crime journalism, 
um, how easy it is to sensationalise these cases, to put in almost titillating details. I've always been so angry about the fact, once I realised it, that there's, there's a couple of murders that made the national news when I was a teenager and was first becoming aware of these kind of stories. And I know these women's names and I know the details of how they died and the last hours of their life. I know such details that I'll never get out of my head. And I don't know anything about them other than that. The most shallow details and yet their names to me are linked with the ways they died. It was very important to me in this book to do the opposite of that. That, that Bella, how she was thought about and remembered, especially with her sister, was not about that even while making it clear that a lot of the media conversation around that was those details. So Chris being her sister, she knows those details. She is the main narrator in the book. There's no way she is going to rehash them. She doesn't want those thoughts in her mind. She's not trying to discuss them in any sense. But the other point of view character in the book is a journalist, um, a woman named May who comes from Sydney to cover the story. And she actually finds herself in, I think, a really real dilemma, um, which is that there is a demand, in a way, for those kind of details. And at one point, she finds herself um, able to access illegally, I mean, as a leak, crime scene photos. And it's a, it's a real dilemma for her whether to access them in the first place, look at them herself, and whether to report on those details, to think about, does anyone actually need to know those kind of details? Um, she knows that it will please her editors. She knows it will get clicks, which is what a lot of the news reporting is about um, in the venue she writes for. Um, but, you know, she's already been in town a while. She's really getting to know Chris and, and the story of Bella and... The, the reality of someone who is loved and that people are there still very much in pain over their death, having these kind of images, even in their head, let alone the actual images of the travesty of how they were taken, is, um, is, is just indecent. Now, Michael, when I started reading your book, the action is slow and soft and deceptively gentle, and then slowly the unease builds. I'd like you to read a passage from your book about that, please. The first time they'd ever had a fight, a real one anyway, was when they moved in together into their first flat on the very first night. When they'd both been exhausted, strung out, fed up with all the packing and unpacking, the endless minute that came. <laughs> Sorry. That came with uprooting yourself and planting your life anew. What had it been again? What had they been fighting about? Something about her parents. She'd wanted to ring her mother once they were in a flat. Just a quick call to say they'd got there and Roy had told her not to. It wasn't so much what he'd said about them, she agreed with half of it, but how he'd put it, the way he'd told her that she wouldn't be calling her mother. They argued then about how they spoke to one another, and he threw her own words back at her, 
things she'd said to him months before, things she couldn't remember saying. When she told him that, he'd asked if she was calling him a liar. And after an hour of words and accusations and justifications thrown back and forth, she wasn't even sure what he'd said to start all this. And what was she trying to say in return? They'd been arguing from one room to the next and ended up in the kitchen screaming at one another. What a lovely introduction that must have been for the neighbours. She called him an asshole, told him he was stupid, and she did it deliberately because he hated being called stupid. He picked up a cup and threw it against the wall near where she was standing. Something small hit her below the eye. A sharp razor point of pain. It had been a sliver of the cup, the rest lay in pieces on the floor, and he'd stood breathing hard, surprised, shocked even, as if she'd been the one to throw the cup. Fuck, he said. Why'd I do that? Marianne reached up to touch the spot below her eye and came away with just enough blood to cover her fingertip. He stepped towards her tentatively as if he expected her to shrink back. They both looked at the blood on her hand. He examined her cheek carefully and shook his head. Why'd I do that? He said again. I could have really hurt you. It's okay, she said. It's not. I wasn't thinking. He was crying, she realised, suddenly childlike, like when he dreamed. It's okay, she told him again, and she hugged his head to her chest, running a hand through his thick, dark curls. When he finally straightened up and stepped away from her, he picked up a sliver of broken cup still lying on the floor and pressed it deep into his finger until a large, bright drop of blood sprang up around it. He gently touched her face with his other hand, dabbed a fresh drop of blood there, mixed it with the blood on his own finger, then stuck it in his mouth. Now we're the same, he said. Are they the same, Michael? Well, I, I think Roy would like for that to be so because it diminishes uh, his responsibility for his own actions. It's a frightening, shocking scene because it starts easy and it goes hard. Is that what it's like, living with a man like that? Look, I, I think, um, I mean, my writing tends to be very sort of, uh, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm always attuned to atmosphere in, in my writing and um, being a child with a father who could fly off the handle at any moment makes you very attuned to the weather. And um, it's, not, it's not actually the moments of violence that are the worst when you're in that kind of situation. It's the anticipation. It's the uncertainty. It's the sense that any moment could become that moment. Do you have a particularly sensitive radar about emotion? Do you sense where people are because of that? I do, actually, yeah. Like, um, not always, but... Um, you know, I can, I, I'll, you know, like, uh, I'll just notice tension and later I'll, I'll mention it to someone and they'll go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just kind of so, I think at times I'm really tuned into what's happening because I've got a lot of practice, I guess. At times I completely miss it as well. Is there anything beneficial about that, about having that talent to understand where the tension is? and where people's emotions lie. Look, it's, I guess the engine driving that is a kind of anxiety, and um, that kind of anxiety is good and bad. It's really what makes me the writer I am, because it makes me finally observational, and I really love that. It also makes really simple conversations really 
difficult and I agonize over things. I'll say something and then I'll think later, I'll think it could have been interpreted this way or this way and my mm. mind just keeps going. I'll kind of, at times, I'm just so oversensitive to things that I just kind of will go through great anguish and it's all in my head. So that's kind of, that's the downside where you're constantly uncertain because you grew up that way, but there's a beautiful upside as well, and that's being able to observe things really deeply. I think, Sarah, with little Charlie, she's a child who tries to second guess what's happening, is she in trouble, how are things. How did you write that character? Um, yes, so she's, she's hyper-vigilant. She's really aware of what's going on around her and she hasn't been living a long time with her stepfather but she's been living with her mother who's also violent. I did a lot of... I talked to a lot of people who work in child protection and people who work with children generally, just did a lot of talking to people and I guess just... I don't know, when you're writing characters, because I didn't grow up with a violent family at all, um, but I guess something in me learned to just observe and notice and I could somehow put myself in Charlie's shoes. Um, yeah, it's a bit magic how writing happens at times. It's just, uh, you know, I drew on things of my own experience. I drew on research and then Charlie just came to me fully formed. You know, Charlie is real. To me. Well, Charlie is lovely. <laughs> Emily, could you read to us, please? Sure. Um, so, just for a little bit of context here, um, there's been another murder in the town um, of a young woman called Tegan, which has just been in the newspaper. Um, so, this is a couple of weeks after Bella's death and Chris, the sister, has just read about Tegan's death in the paper and she wonders when Tegan knew she was going to be killed. Bella had to have known. The question is how much and how soon? When she closed the nursing home door behind her and strode out into the street with her keys in her hand, did she have a key protruding between each finger of her closed fist the way our mother taught us? And did she feel it, a shiver of fear, a tiny premonition that something bad was going to happen? Did she, for even an instant, think about going back inside and asking one of the orderlies to walk her to her car? And then did she shush her own mind, still her own heart, as she imagined saying the words, actually admitting that she was afraid to walk less than 100 metres? How stupid she would feel asking for an escort for such a short distance, in such a clear space, in daylight, based on nothing but a tingle at the place her ponytail met her scalp. So she walked on alone, and what? When did she know something, if not everything? Was it when a man approached her and asked for directions, or to use her phone, or for a date, for the time? And she, being polite, being kind, being unwilling to assume the worst, turns, smiles, answers. And even when she sees the knife or gun or feels his hand on her throat, she doesn't scream. She says something kind and quiet, trying to disarm, to calm, like she does when a dementia patient goes ballistic, like she did when her older sister and boyfriend came home drunk and rowdy and started smashing glasses in the kitchen. 
Or did she know when a car pulled up beside her and she heard a voice say, what? What might they have said? Or when it, when, was it when she was sprawled or sat primly on the back seat of a strange car or coming to on the floor of that car, old dirt or reeking cigarette butts under her cheek? Or was it on finding herself, waking maybe, beside the highway, a man looming over her, her skin screaming, and she remembers the shiver when leaving work, remembers and remembers and remembers and rehearses in her head how she would advise other women, advise her sister, to always pay attention to that shiver. Because look, because look. And maybe this other girl, Tegan, maybe she'd been following the news about Bella. She would have felt sad for her because every human with a heart must. And she would have got stricter about personal safety because every woman with a brain did. She wouldn't have walked around or parked her car in deserted areas, even in broad daylight. She would have walked with her keys between her knuckles, her phone in the other hand, looked twice at slow cruising cars, trying to memorize the number plate just in case. She wouldn't have gone out after dark alone, would have been glad to have her husband at her back. You know, it's funny, years ago I was on a date, it was like a first date thing, and we were going to go to for coffee from the restaurant. He had a car, I got into the car, and suddenly I felt absolute fear. Fear that makes you cold for no particular reason, although he was an odd man in retrospect. And I said, and I was older, so I wasn't a teenager, and I had more confidence in saying what I was feeling. And I said, I need to get out. And I said it again, and he stopped, and I got out. But that feeling, that animal feeling, is horrific. Were you angry when you wrote this book? Uh Look, at times. I mean, it took me several years to write and I was also working on other things at the same time, including a long reported piece of journalism about um, domestic homicides. Uh, so obviously that fed in and of course I was angry um, covering those stories as anyone must be. And I think anger is definitely part of this story. Um, but it's not polemical in any sense with that anger because um, I don't have answers in that sense. So it's not a manifesto about what to do about this violence against women. It's more asking a question of, well, first of all, what are women's lives worth? What is the case-by-case -case loss with these women? One woman a week is murdered in Australia, um, most of the time by someone who purports to love her or has loved her, um, what is the meaning of that on that case-by-case -case basis? And also, as most fiction for me, I think, is about how do we live? So you take a specific person of specific time and place and, like, what is it like to be them? How do they do life? And for a lot of women, once you have been touched by this kind of violence, even if not in this specifically dramatic way, but any of these cases that we're talking about here, or even you in that car, it's hard to not live with this awareness. I mean, it's hard from when you're seven years old and you start being told to carry your keys between your knuckles and not trust anyone. How do you live with the awareness of what 
can happen while not becoming a crazy shut-in that doesn't speak to any man ever again while loving and (laughs) marrying and taking men home when you want and having friendships and all the rest of it. And so, yes, there's anger there, but there's also a really genuine inquiry of how, how do we do this as human beings? How do we love each other and keep going on while we also have, at the same time, this awareness of what keeps happening? Michael, were you angry when you wrote the book or not? Uh, hmm. I had lots of emotions when I wrote the book uh, and I guess uh, definitely anger was one um, thread in it because I, I, I mean as Emily says it's kind of you have these murders in the media and people get kind of emblazoned with that as their identity and the person who gets an identity apart from the way they died is usually the man. And so I found I, I find that tremendously frustrating, and um, I'd like I'd like those stories to be much more focused on what is lost, uh, rather than how it is lost, uh, in a certain way. Um, so definitely anger, because I just feel that there's just this narrative that happens and it needs to be broken apart, but. My driving curiosity as a writer uh, is curiosity. And it's kind of opening things up and asking questions because, you know, I don't want to be providing answers to people. I want people to be asking questions. That's the most important thing I can be doing. Thank you. Can I just say something about your book, Michael? Um, You know, I've read the news, the media, and I read about violence against women, and I'm shocked, but it's often more of an intellectual response. But reading your book, it's like it took me inside an experience in a way that was just so, like it just pierced me absolutely. And I still haven't quite processed it. I've sort of had to put it to one side to do a bit later when I've got more time and space. But I feel like it's reading your book, taking me inside the experience from the point of view, not of the man, but of the others, will impel me to action much more than changed me and changed my views on and pulled me to action much more than a newspaper article. So thank you for writing it. (laughs) Sarah, while you've got the microphone Mm. and while you're impelled into action, the piece I'd like you to read from the promise is just about that. What happens and when do you take action? So just to set this up a little... um, Anna, my, the woman, has um, basically got Charlie, the child, into her home after a very violent incident and the girl's stepfather doesn't know where she is at this point. <clears throat> and Anna has just called FACS, Family and Community Services, who, and she wants them to come there right now and they're saying they can't, that she should call the police, but she knows that the police came the night before and didn't do anything. Anna wanted to throw the phone down the hall. Aren't you meant to be looking after her? She was shouting now. Isn't that your whole brief? What will it take for someone to come and take care of this child? Does she have to die for you to do something? She hung up and tossed the phone onto the dining table. In the bath, Charlie sat quietly, watching Anna with big eyes. Oh, God, the child just heard Anna talk about her dying. Anna knelt on the tiles beside the bath and turned the water off. The bruise on Charlie's arm looked very sore. It was darker and bigger than last night. 
No one out there was taking responsibility for this child. Not a single bloody person. Not those polite women on the end of the phone. Not the police officers who left Charlie there last night. Not the neighbours who must have heard the screams too. Everyone just assumed that someone else would take care of it. Everyone looked the other way. Anna was suddenly exhausted. Perhaps it had been hubris to think she could step in and alter the path Charlie was heading down. Perhaps this exhaustion was a sign that she was pushing too hard, trying to push shit uphill. She probably just made things much worse for Charlie. Charlie's voice was tiny. Do I have to go home now? The girl was completely at Anna's mercy. Anna took a shaky breath and tried to smile. When Mummy gets back, I'll take you home. Anna traced the rough edge of the tiles on the side of the bath. She had to know. Was Mummy there when Harlan put your head in the toilet? Charlie didn't move for a moment. Then she gave a small nod. In that quiet bathroom, Anna was filled with a terrible, helpless dread that she would be sending Charlie next door to her death. And later, when the girl was dead, when she was the subject of a few indignant newspaper articles like the one Anna read about the little Newcastle boy, Anna would look back on this moment when Charlie sat trustingly in her bath, the orange washer on her lap. Charlie rested her hand on Anna's arm. Her fingers were cold. I don't want to go home. Someone had to take this child away from Harlan and Gabby. To take someone else's child was wrong, but what if the wrong thing, the illegal thing, was also the right thing? What if taking a child from its mother was the lesser of two evils? Anna helped the girl out of the bath and dried her. Anna's mind spun and her cheeks fizzed with heat, with fear. Could she go through with this? She took hold of Charlie's hands, such small fingers. You don't have to go home. You're not going home. You're coming with me. And so the book unfolds. Do we turn a blind eye to domestic violence? An open question. Um, I guess we need to talk about who is we. Um, people who work in domestic violence um, are constantly frustrated by how much lip service is paid to the idea. There seems to be, particularly in the last couple of years, um, much of it thanks to Rosie Batty, um, but other forces converging too, mean that our public conversation is talking about violence against women a lot more, including domestic and family violence. But if you talk to people who are on the front line of services, um, it's just incredibly frustrating because it is mostly lip service. It is mostly talking about it. There's a lot said about awareness and funding campaigns that are for awareness. And what happens when awareness gets raised is that the phone hotlines and the refuges are turning people away and not answering calls. And if there's something worse than someone feeling they can't ask for help, it's them finally getting to a point where they ask for help and getting an engaged signal or a locked door because the funding isn't there. So do we ignore it? No, we talk about it. Um, people get very serious expressions and talk about it. But I don't know, I, I have one of those click moments a couple of years ago when I was having a conversation with a friend who was saying, oh, it's just, you know, all this talk about it, can it really be that bad out there? I don't know anyone, I don't think. And I just realised, because I'd been doing this research, that Maybe some people who haven't, who've been lucky enough not to have direct experience of it don't realise this, but there are houses here in this town, in every town, in a lot of suburbs, 
This whole purpose for existing is to hide and shelter women and children from men who want to hurt them. What kind of society needs to have buildings set aside for that? And they're all too full and there's not enough room. It might feel like we're talking about it a lot, but it feels a lot also like we're ignoring it by talking about it. Michael. Yeah, um, I mean, I think the really interesting thing about that for me is that there's all this talk of awareness and yet funding is generally being cut to those services <laughs> and it's just crazy. It, this is something that just infuriates me. Like, is are we talking too much about domestic violence? Well, we talk more about property. We talk more about rising house prices. Um, and the reality is that we are an enormously rich society and our, gov our successive governments, essentially, they don't think it's a priority to put the money into this stuff. They can spend billions of, of dollars on things that they're interested in. Um, you know, you know let's, let's do an Olympics. Uh, I'd rather see, I'd rather see um, way more support way more safe houses, way more legal support, so that when people make that decision, they can actually find a way out. That's society looking after its most vulnerable members. Sarah. And I think that in the conversation about domestic violence, the, the term violence against women is often interchangeably, and I think that violence against children is often just not part of the picture. And some of the people I talked to in researching this book said the community would be horrified beyond belief if they knew the numbers of children who are enduring abuse. And sometimes that coexists with violence against women, but not always. And they said it is just horrifying. And the numbers are not out there because of all sorts of reasons to do with, you know, confidentiality and privacy when it comes to children. But they were just shocked. On that point, and I'll turn to you, Emily, your character, Chris, had a difficult childhood herself, but she said she'd rather have the violence than to be put into care. Is that a common view in your experience or in your research? Uh, I couldn't possibly say if it's common, but it's definitely a view. There's um, definitely, I've had, um, without going into too much detail, I have had personal experience of, of children who I've known who have um, asked for help from adults in their life with the specific um, caveat that if you call the police or do anything to get my father arrested, um, I will never speak to you again. You will make me regret asking for this help because there is often love involved. Um, it is often complicated and sometimes women in these situations and children, what they want is the violence for, to stop. They don't necessarily want the offender to not be in their life, and that can be hard from the outside. But the reality is that it is often the case that they just want the violence to stop. I mean, I think Charlie in Sarah's book, even though the stepfather is the main offender there, I mean, she still she misses her mum. She wants to feel safe, but she still loves her mum. She just doesn't want to be in the violent situation, and that's, that's real. Sarah, do you have a thought on that? No, I think, I think Emily's covered that. Thank you. Well, I don't know about you, but the more the world careers into violence and horror and it seems to be uncertainty, I wonder where you find a quiet place to write. Where do you find calmness to block out 
the media. Do you have, as writers, any tips? Michael. Oh, look, uh, I have... Um I have children, <laughs> he says in a hushed tone. Um, I've, I've got a four and a five-year-old um, and a 13-year-old and a 15-year-old stepson. So, um, and where do I find quiet time? Wherever I can get it. But one of the things I've learnt is that there's no perfect space <laughs> and there's no perfect time. Uh, most of the writing I do, I do just when I get the chance. And if inspiration doesn't find me, well, so be it. I've still got to keep writing. What do you find, Emily? Um, I don't have any kids, so I have a lot of quiet in my house, which I'll try not to be too smug about. <laughs> um, but I, I, I do still have, a, you know, busyness, and I absolutely 100% agree that you get the writing done when you can get it done and where you can, regardless of kids or anything else. But it's interesting, when I think of sort of like, I don't know, psychological calm or quiet when I'm writing with grim this kind of grim stuff or the journalism I've done around this subject, to me, the real solve to that, to my soul, to make me feel I can go on, is actually spending time with kids. Now, obviously, not my own, which would add a level of stress as well because I have to <laughs> care for them, but other people's kids. I have um, 17 nieces and nephews. I have a lot of kids around me when I want them. And the just the rejuvenating aspect of really spending time with kids and really getting involved in their conversations and the things they care about and playing with the little ones. To me, it's like my number one thing that I would do when I'm feeling like I can't with this world anymore, I'm done. Um, that almost always will fix that, just spending time with other people's kids. <laughs> Now, Mullumbimby, you have calm everywhere oh, all yes, the time. Oh, yes, so calm in Mullumbimby. We are all really laid back, <laughs> except when we're being flooded. Um, yeah, look, I've, having, looking after a small child, a seven-year-old, is demanding, but like you, Emily, I find my life is, in fact, really full of joy and, and happiness, and that's largely to do with her. And um, <clears throat> this book... You know, really it was a happy book to write because it is a love story and because I've aimed for an uplifting ending. So it wasn't gruelling really mm -hmm. to write at all. And uh, what's gruelling is just the business of sitting down and just yeah. churning out words and figuring out how to fit them together better and how to, you know, that's gruelling. It's just the hours and hours and hours sitting at a desk in front of a computer trying to make it better, uh, but uh, I, I just write in school hours, basically, except when I'm writing to deadline and then I do really <laughs> crazy things like get up in the middle of the night. She, Sarah said earlier this morning she would set her alarm for midnight, work for a few hours, go back to bed and start it again. But Who sets their alarm for midnight? Any show of hands? <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. There's, the There's one. <laughs> Excellent. Um, perhaps it's the way to go. Michael. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, um, even when they're your own kids, it is it, 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 that is an incredible solve. Like you know, um, sort of being able to give love to your own children and and just seeing them being happy and safe. It's just one. Of, it is the most important thing you can do. Um, writing is really really important to me, but being a great parent and just kind of making sure that they're happy and that they've got everything they need in life is really the thing that gives the writing meaning. I think we'll end on that note and open up for questions. Now what we're going to do is we'll have a show of hands for questions. I'll repeat the question and we'll go from there.
I know the first one's always the tricky one. Thank you. So for, the, for those who couldn't hear, the statement really was to thank the writers for writing about violence rather than just having it as a fleeting thing where you hear about it, you deal with it, you go home, actually sitting with it, considering it, researching it. Thank you. Is there another question? Ah, <laughs> I think I'll hand over to the author himself. Please, this is your time to spruik your launch. Oh, God. Um, uh, asking me for directions is a terrible idea. Um, but what street gallery, it's just around the corner, basically. It's on this block. Um, is it, just correct me if I'm wrong, it, I, I think, oh, yeah, see, that I way. told you, that don't way. ask me. It's on the, the program guide, though, and yeah. <laughs> yes, it's very close. It's about a five-minute walk away. Hopefully, I'll get there. If you see Michael at four o'clock elsewhere, send him that way. <laughs> I've got a time for about the two or three questions. Otherwise, I've got some more. Is there anybody else? Ah, yes, thank you. You're the bloke on stage, Michael. Do you feel responsible for violence? <laughs> yes. No, um, Next question. <laughs> uh, look, I, I do think that's it's, a, it's sort of a complex question in a way. I mean, it's, I'm in an interesting position. My, my grandparents were, were members of the Dutch Nazi Party, for example. So, um, you know, uh, I... <laughs> like that's a big yeah, question. Uh, <laughs> a big yeah, yeah. So you know, I, I get the I, I get that sort of complicity from multiple directions. I, I don't feel so much complicit as um, I think it's really important to engage with the issue and to just do everything I can, I guess, in my position. Um, I mean, I, I, I experienced it from my father, from my stepfather. My my mum experienced it. And so I guess what we as, as storytellers do is we, we bring our empathy towards that situation. That's what we can do. But, you know, it's up to men as well as women. Sorry, I know the question was to Michael, but I just wanted to comment as well. Even when we're talking about men being most of the perpetrators of this kind of violence, men are also often the victims of male violence. Men are actually victims of violence more than women overall and children are male and female. So there's certainly a problem in terms of perpetrators being mostly male that we need to address an issue there. But 
But yeah, men are victims of violence as well and that's got to be part of the conversation as well um, so that it doesn't just split on gender lines in terms of who has a voice in the conversation, I think. Now, my question is one about titles. I'm always fascinated by... Ah, my question can wait because <laughs> the audience questions rule. Well, So the comment was, the problem with having male perpetrators often being important people in their own professions and being used to being in control and then reflecting that in their domestic circumstances. Is that correct? Was there another question? Please. So the question is, do you have any tips about writing from a young person's perspective about violence when they haven't had experience of them themselves? Big question. Uh, yeah, that's, that's oh, a huge question, isn't it? Um, look, uh, I, I, I think my key is don't overplay the emotion, be sensitive and restrained. Restraint is always the key, I think, to describing those intense situations. When you haven't experienced it, you tend to overplay it. Anybody else? Oh. Sorry. <laughs> I would just add too, in, in any kind of um, creative writing when you're imagining yourself into an experience that's not yours. I think we can have a tendency to think of, okay, so this person's a survivor of violence. We let that define them in our writing about them, whereas almost everyone has more than one thing going on about their life that they care about. Even people in violent situations, except at the moments of extreme drama, they're still caring about what's happening at school or falling in love or having friendships. And there's this tension in the background, which Michael shows in his book with the teenage character so well. But that's not all they think about. It's just something that's hanging there. And, and whatever you're writing with a character, to define them by any one particular aspect, that narrows what it is to be a human being going through something. I think we've got time for one question. For those who have a question but don't want to ask the question here, Emily, Michael and Sarah will be at the bookshop downstairs. They'll be signing their books and I'm sure they'll be answering your questions. So who's going to be lucky last? There was someone stretching. Was that a hand? <laughs> no. One question 
Two questions, okay. Let's see if we can do both. Thank you. So the comment was, uh, although um, many perpetrators are men, it shouldn't be overlooked that behind the perpetration, sometimes women are also there as well. Is that what you were saying? Thank you for that. So really the, the, the question to be mindful of the complexity of this issue of violence. Our last question was down here, please. Yeah, sure. Thanks for that. Um, I guess my question is for all of you, but for you specifically, Michael, you mentioned that the main character in your book is um, based on a few people that you've known in your life, but specifically your stepfather. I was just wondering out of curiosity, is he still with us? Are you still in contact with him? Does he know that this character is based on him? And how <laughs> oh. does he feel about that? Is he annoyed? Oh, oh look, um, let me just clarify. It, it's inspired by my experiences with him. So um, he's very different in certain ways. But that, you know, as a writer, you use what you know. Um, I guess one one of the things I just want to I mean he's he's around uh, he still pretty much lives where he went lives where he went you know back in the day uh, when I was ten but I just wanted to quickly sort of say that I think that one of the big things that I see happening is a valorization of violence it's what I grew up with here um, the celebration of male expression through violence boys being boys bring back the biff. And I find all that stuff repulsive, and it is something very masculine. Um, and but I think that, of course, women play a role in helping to construct that masculinity as well as parents. So yeah. We've come to the end of our time. Thank you so much, Emily, Michael, Sarah. I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation from the 2017 Newcastle Writers Festival. We hope you can join us this year from Friday, April the 6th to the 8th. We have 130 of Australia's best writers coming to town ready to share their ideas and insights. For more information, please visit newcastlewritersfestival.org.au.